And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. This is Jesus speaking on the Mount of Olives. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand it rightly today. Uh, guide us by your spirit into truth. We pray that you would deliver us from every distracting thought, deliver us from every error, and uh, we, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, the 2024 United States presidential election will not be the most important event in human history. It's not going to be, I can promise you. It will not even be the most important thing to happen this year. And yet, over the next 10 months, all of the forces of media and public discourse are going to be marshaled to convince you that nothing is more critical, nothing is more significant, and nothing is more urgent than this election. Pundits and politicians and talking heads want you to believe that the future of the cosmos hangs in the balance, and we have the power to manipulate that. They will use histrionic language to warn, alarm, terrify us about the grim future, the doom, and the oblivion that is sure to follow if the election goes the wrong way. And by my calculation, this is the ninth consecutive most important election in U.S. history, if you're keeping track. Nine consecutive most important elections in U.S. history. We're, we will have this environment of unrest and tension thrust upon us if this is anything like the last election uh, cycle. Uh, th th there will be nonsense and chaos and obnoxiousness all around us because there are forces that profit from fear. There are forces that profit from anxiety because an anxious people will justify anything to get what they want. If you're anxious, you lay aside all of your principles, all logic. You're willing to cheat and steal and kill and do whatever it takes to win because losing is death, and we assume that there's nothing worse than death. Well, for secularists, that's true. There's no resurrection for secularists, or, or, or so, they, so they believe that, that nothing is worse than death. So fear of death, even political death, justifies all manner of sin and irrationality. Terrified people are easy to manipulate. The wicked manufacture problems and they project themselves as the only solutions to those problems. And the terrified can't see through that. The fearful and the anxious take the bait every time. The fearful want quick fixes. They don't want long-term, sacrificial, 
often painful, but actually real effective solutions. And so if you watch the news, and if you listen to podcasts, and you scroll Twitter, and you engage in any kind of politically centered media, this fear-mongering will be the atmosphere that you are breathing. It's my job, it's actually in my job description, to remind you to not fear. It is my job to tell you not to get sucked into this, not to take this as seriously as the media and the politicians and your aunt on Facebook all want you to, to take this. Let me put the question to you this way. What would be more effective long-term for the health and the preservation of this nation? What would be more effective for the health of this nation? For the election to go the way that we want it to or for the reformation of the church in this land? And I realize that that isn't an either-or. We can pray for both, and we can, we can hope for the best when it, when it comes to elections. But as a matter of priority, as a matter of where we focus our highest thoughts, our prayers, our energies, which is more critical? Which is more serious? That the, that the presidential election go to any Republican, just a Republican, any Republican, or that the church across the United States cleans house, upholds the authority of scripture, exercises church discipline, believes the promises of God toward their children, baptizing their children in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a church that comes weekly into God's presence to eat real bread and drink real wine together, a unified church singing the entire Psalter, praying these biblical imprecatory prayers against the abortionists, against all tyrants, against anybody who would abuse and corrupt and pervert and, and mutilate children and deceive children, praying these prayers against them. A church that collectively removes their children from the government indoctrination centers. Which is more important to you? Between the two, having the election go your way or a church that is reformed, which would you prefer? Now, I know how you would answer. Given that question, I know how you would answer. But we all know professing Christians who are invested deeply in American politics who have a very low regard for the body of Christ. And we also can be momentarily tempted in that direction. We are tempted to worship power. We are tempted to trust the political process has all that it needs to fix our woes. Uh, we, we, are, we are tempted to worship mammon, and we forget that we get the government we deserve. We forget that God has set his church at the vanguard of society, of culture, and she leads the world into either blessing or judgment. We forget that God is sovereign over all human history and that nothing happens outside of his control. We forget that the most important events and people in the world are almost always the events and the people that don't make the news. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are the most important events in human history. And at the time they happened, no one in power really cared. And of course, today, all those who are in power are gone and Jesus still reigns. Now, if you think that I'm saying elections don't matter at all or that the world doesn't matter, I'm not. I'm talking about priority and focus and how we are apt to ignore the most effective means of change in the world. So stay with me and see how this works out in our text today. In the last days before his crucifixion, 
Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, overlooking this massive temple complex, having just encountered these waves of opposition from the religious and political parties in the city. And as they came at him, Jesus exposed them as, as hypocrites and unfaithful, murderous, negligent caretakers of God's house and God's people. And Jesus pronounced, in responding to them, he pronounced in both parables and woes that this entire arrangement, this entire political and religious arrangement of Jerusalem, it's all coming down. And before they left the temple, Jesus asked his disciples, do you see all of this? Do you understand all of this? Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then we get, when they get to the Mount of Olives and sit down overlooking the city and the temple, the disciples ask Jesus, when? When will these things be? When is your parousia? They use a very specific term there when they say, what is the sign of your coming? What they're asking is, what, when is your coming as king to sort all this out? And he answers their question, which we began to study last week. And as I mentioned last week, evangelicals for the last hundred years or so have viewed the events that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 as being entirely in our future. We read these things and we think, oh, this is coming and this hasn't happened yet and this is in our future. It's just generally assumed that what Jesus is talking about here is the end of the cosmos or the crises leading up to the final judgment day in the future. But we have two guardrails that prevent us from reading this this way. The first is the context of the conversation, the statement of Jesus and the question of the disciples. Jesus says, do you see this temple? Not one stone will be left on top of the other. And the, uh, and the disciples ask, when? When will this happen? And we get the answer. That is the context of this conversation. They don't ask him, Lord, when are you going to tear down this temple? And then he jumps from there and he talks about events thousands of years into the future. That, that would be uh, unbelievable. That would be, that would be out of the context of this whole conversation. So that's the first guardrail. The second guardrail is that Jesus says in verse 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So the second guardrail is that what Jesus described here happened within that generation, living at that time. So those are the two guardrails we keep in place that these things are in that generation and Jesus is talking about primarily the coming judgment on the temple that will leave it destroyed. And so you can see then uh, with those things in place, this is not an account of future catastrophe for us. Jesus began answering their question about the sign of his parousia, his coming, to sort everything out. He began answering their question about how he was going to draw near to Jerusalem to judge it by mentioning some things that are not signs of that coming, but which they would be tempted to see as signs. We studied this last week. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Those are not signs. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes. Don't look at any one of those and think that this is the sign. This is the end of the world. This is just the beginning. He says there will be persecutions and false teachers and apostasy. Some will fall away from the faith. And you're going to be tempted to think that, that the mission is over. Because of this, it's a lost cause, but it's not. There are those who will endure through all of this. But the end is not near. 
the end will not even be close to being near until the message of the gospel is preached throughout, he uses this word, throughout the oikumene, throughout the, the Roman Empire, throughout the civilized world. Uh, it's not until the gospel is preached throughout the, the Roman Empire, throughout the world of the Mediterranean, uh, and, then, and then we'll start to see the end. But don't lose heart, he's saying. Don't ride an emotional roller coaster, to use modern language. Don't ride this emotional roller coaster by investing yourself in the events of fallen human society. In fact, Jesus says specifically, see that you are not troubled. Don't be anxious by these, uh, become anxious by these things. Don't be shaken by all of this. If you're looking at all of this, Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong direction. Then, in our text today, he tells them what to look for. If you want to know when I'm coming in judgment with the host of heaven, with great vengeance for the blood of the prophets and the blood of the martyrs, coming against this place to obliterate this city and this temple, here is what you need to look for. Watch the sanctuary and how things are going there. Pick up in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus says, look for the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And when you see that, get out of town. Now, what could he be referring to? What is this abomination? Many commentators, even even those who understand that Jesus is primarily speaking about events in the first century, will, will look for something that the Romans did or something that the uh, Herods uh, did, uh, something that they were up to that could be identified as this abomination. But this abominable thing is not something that a Gentile can commit. This word throughout Scripture is not used for, uh, for Gentile sins. It's a sanctuary term. It's a word that refers to Levitical work. Another way to translate this is sacrilege or detestable thing. It's a, it's a sin that can only be committed by a priest or a member of the priestly nation. It had to be something carried out by a religious leader ordinarily in the sanctuary, something so detestable, something so sacrilegious, something so abominable that it leads to desolation. God desolates. God abandons, departs from his sanctuary in response. Has that ever happened in the history of God's covenant people? Has a high priest, has a priest, has a Levite ever committed something so detestable that God picks up and his, his presence departs from the sanctuary and leaves it desolate? Well, yes, it's happened several times. When Aaron, the high priest, makes a golden calf, God leaves the camp of Israel, and he threatens Moses. He says, I'm not going to go with you any further. I'm going to tabernacle away from the camp. God desolates the sanctuary because of the abomination. It's the abomination. The golden calf is an abomination that leads to desolation. When Eli, the high priest, um, has these wicked sons who plunder the sacrifices of the people, who lie with women at the tabernacle, what happens? Uh, this abominable thing leads to God's ark departing from the sanctuary, and it never comes back. He goes and spends time, uh, Yahweh spends time in his, uh, with his ark among the Philistines, uh, and the, two, uh, the, the tabernacle is never put back together. 
the glory departs from Israel. It's Ichabod. The, the, the sanctuary is left desolate because of these abominations. And then uh, we also looked at Ezekiel briefly last week when the priests and the elders set up idols in the temple and worship them in Ezekiel's day, God's presence goes up and it leaves the temple. It leaves the temple desolate because of this abomination. This is a pattern throughout Israel's history. The sanctuary becomes desolated because of abominations committed by the priests and the Levites. And Jesus says here in Matthew 24, he says, Daniel told you about this. Daniel, in fact, wrote about two more abominations of desolation. One in chapter 9, and he, and he uses the term again in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Daniel prophesies about the reign of the Greek tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes ruled over Judea in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during that time, during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, there were two consecutive compromised high priests. One was Jason, one was Menelaus. And these two high priests became apostates. They both mixed Greek traditions and Greek uh, worship, Greek idolatry, together with temple worship. Uh, they, they gave up the treasures of the temple to Antiochus. They just delivered them up to Antiochus. They conspired with Antiochus in the subjugation of Jerusalem and in the massacre of the people. And Daniel prophesies about that period in history. And, and then in a different place, in, in Daniel's prophecies of Messiah, he refers to another abomination that makes desolate. And so we can extrapolate from there that there will be another sequence of events very similar to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. So that sequence of events goes like this, the one that actually happened in that intertestamental time, which we also, we think of as the time of the Maccabees. Here's what happened, that a Gentile ruler attacked the covenant people with the support of apostate high priests. The apostate Jews defile the sanctuary, they commit abominations, and they attack those who remain faithful. And that leads to the desolation of the house. And so if you study the history, that's exactly the sequence of events that happened in the years leading up to the final destruction of the temple in AD 70. So here's my best understanding, what I believe Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The, the warning that judgment is near, what Jesus says, he, he tells them to look for this as the sign that, that the final, that the end of all things is near. And so the abomination of desolation must be the completion of the construction of Herod's temple in AD 64. And, and, and here's the logic. Here's what's going on. What, what temple are Jesus and his disciples looking at as they sit on the Mount of Olives? What temple did they just walk around? What, what was this temple? Remember that, that uh, the temple of Solomon was destroyed in 587 BC by Babylon. And after 70 years of captivity, the people come back and Ezra uh, oversees a temple project that begins around 516 BC, but that was a work in proce process and work in progress for many years. When Herod the Great comes along, he undertakes a massive project for the expansion of that temple in 20 BC, 
and eventually doubles the size of the temple complex, and that massive work was not completed until A.D. 64. So the temple that Jesus and the disciples are looking at is a temple that's under renovation. It's a temple that's under construction. It's still a work in, in, in progress. And when that grandiose public works project comes to completion in 64 AD, two things are going on simultaneously within Judaism. First, the completion of that temple was an enormous morale booster for the Jews. They were energized with the conviction that this meant God was on their side. Because God allowed this to finish uh, and come to completion, this means that we win. Uh, this, is, this is good for us. And that was great fodder for false priests, uh, I'm sorry, false prophets and false messiahs. That it, this gave them the sense of national pride and it fired up the reactionaries and the revolutionaries to revolt against Rome. And initially, they had some successes. They, they drove the Romans out of the city of Jerusalem in, uh, in 66. That was the first thing. So the completion of the temple in 64 gave this, this boost of, of pride and energy to the revolutionaries and the reactionaries. And second the high priests operating within the institution of the temple were trying to maintain this Sadducean compromise of, of Greek philosophy and apostate Judaism and at the same time cooperate with the Romans to suppress the Christian church. And, and if you know history, you know that this is the same period of time where Nero is carrying out persecutions against the church to the glee, to the approval of of the Jews. So, so what's happening in this period of time as this temple of Herod is completed is that dead apostate Judaism is ripping itself apart internally. But the common rallying point between them all, the symbol that everything is going to be okay, the symbol that everything is going their way is the completion of this temple. And I'm convinced that this completed temple is the abomination of desolation that Jesus tells them to look for. And that, this is why. This is a temple now entirely dedicated to preserving the dead form of the old covenant, which, which now per, perpetuates this anti-Christian religion. And so it's a false temple. The priests who stood in that sanctuary would be the men who unabashedly declared that they have no king but Caesar. They were, they were pleased by the crucifixion of Jesus. They were overjoyed by the martyrdom of, of Christ's people. Thus, this entire arrangement became an abomination. And Jesus said he was the true temple. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the once-for-all final sacrifice that ever has to be offered for sins. And so by continuing this project and being excited about this project to build up Herod's temple and to be overjoyed by its completion, the Jews are openly and without re reservation rejecting Jesus. Ultimately, finally, the completion of that false temple brought the sacrilege to a full and public climax. 
At this point, the die is cast. It's like the concrete is set. Their national rejection of Jesus was final. And that put in motion the events uh, of the final judgment of, of the world of the old covenant. God completely, after this, abandoned the city, the temple, and the Jewish race as a special people. And so as Jesus details this for his disciples, they're hearing this and they know something very similar has already happened in history with Antiochus. All of them know that history. They know about Jason. They know about Menelaus and the time of the Maccabees. And Jesus says to his disciples, you study Daniel. You've seen this before. When it happens again, you're going to know it. When you see this abomination completed, standing in the holy place, get out of town. This is the sign that the end of this old world, of the old covenant, the old creation is near. The end for this is near. And Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When Lot was delivered from Sodom, the angel said, flee to the mountains. When Israel was delivered from Egypt in the Exodus, they fled to Mount Sinai. So if Jesus says, flee to the mountains, you know what kind of place you're leaving. In Revelation 11, Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. And so Jesus says, once again, you're going to have to flee Sodom. You're going to have to flee Egypt. And what Jesus describes here, he's given them specific instructions, things to do when they see this great event. He expects them to follow his instructions. So I don't think the first century church saw this as a puzzle or a, or a dark mystery. The completion of the temple would reinvigorate Jewish persecution against Christians in Jerusalem. So before the violence breaks out, get out, go to the mountains, flee Sodom and Egypt. In verse 17, Jesus says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't turn back to get anything. When it's time to get out of town, don't mess around. Get out of town. Maybe Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole when he says, hyperbole when he says, don't go in your house and grab anything. Don't, if you're in the field, don't go back to the house. But he's not joking. The old world is dying and it's dying quickly. The old world is doomed. It's under judgment. Don't go back and try to salvage anything out of the old world and try to bring it over here. Verse 19, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. There'd be great hardship on pregnant and nursing mothers in those days. Travel is tough anyway in the ancient world, and, and, and tr travel would be incredibly difficult on these women, these women who would be protecting and caring and feeding and nurturing their babies while they flee persecution. This, uh, this exemplifies, they exemplify the church who will be doing the same thing. The church is always doing this, and, and especially during this time in history, bearing children through suffering. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. Jesus says without any, any qualification, there's no asterisk next to this, there's no little footnote. He says that the time I'm describing is the worst period of suffering ever. And there will never be another time like this. You can read about some pretty harsh cruelty and barbarism and violence in the ancient world or the, or the cruelty of the Aztecs 
and the Mayans or the tyranny and the cruelty of the Soviet Union or of China or of Cambodia. But it's striking to, that, that Jesus says, this is the worst time in history and there will never be another time like it. And, and you, again, you go back and you read about this period between 66 and 70 and, and, and you'll see what Jesus is talking about. The, the, the rebellion against Rome began in the summer of 66. And for three and a half years, until the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, there was, it was a time of unparalleled bloodshed and brutality and savagery. And you can read all about this in Josephus. The uprisings of the revolutionaries led to several massacres of the Jews. And the Roman army was not discriminating. They didn't discriminate between man and woman and child, between elderly. They didn't discriminate between Jews and Christians. In fact, the Romans who, who, were, uh, who did know the difference between the Jews, and the, Rome, um, the Jews and the Christians, the Romans who did know the difference were prejudiced even more against the Christians because Nero had the, them convinced that the Christians had burned Rome in, in 64. Uh, so um, according to Revelation 14, the blood of the slaughtered Christians filled the land. The Christians were getting it from both sides, from both the Jews and the Romans during this period of time. And so Jesus says this was the greatest time of suffering in the history of the world. And yet the time of suffering, Jesus says, will be cut short for the sake of the elect. This was for the, the it's cut short for the preservation of the church. The world's suffering even was alleviated because of the elect. Uh, is it cut short to save the lives of the elect or to save the souls of the elect? I'm, I'm confident and comfortable saying the latter. The, the physical persecution was tremendous, but the spiritual suffering had to be even greater. Suffering can tempt you to think that God has abandoned you, that you should give up, that you should throw in the towel. These Christians had been abandoned by friends and family, Jesus said in the previous section that some will leave the faith, others' hearts will grow cold. So when everything looks dark and hopeless is when you start looking for shortcuts. You start getting impatient. Maybe we should join the rebellion. Maybe we should listen to one of these false prophets. Maybe Jesus is in the wilderness. Let's go, let's go follow these false prophets out to the wilderness. For the sake of their souls, for the sake of their faith, this time of tribulation would be cut short, Jesus said. He warns them again about false teachers and false hopes in verse 23. He says, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. There, if they, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it and by implication, the inner rooms of the temple. Look, we, we found him. He's, he's hanging out in the temple. Don't believe it. Remember, once again, the disciples are asking about when is, what is the sign of your parousia? When is the sign of your coming to sort things out as king? And he's abundantly clear that what he's talking about here, his coming in judgment against this abomination, his coming in judgment against this desolate city, this desolate temple, is not going to be a bodily physical appearance. It's not going to be in his physical presence. Remember, we covered this last week, how when Yahweh appears in judgment uh, on the day of the Lord, and the prophets talk about various days of the Lord, the prophets warn about this, Yahweh's coming in judgment was not bodily 
or physical uh, in, in his personal appearance. The day of the Lord, what was it? The day of the Lord was locusts. The day of the Lord was plagues. The day of the Lord was disasters. The day of the Lord was Assyrian and Roman armies invading. And so Jesus says, if somebody tells you they've seen me, don't believe them because that's not how I'm coming. I'm telling you right now, Jesus says, I'm telling you they're lying. If they say they see me, don't believe them. Don't follow them. I'm going to tell you what my appearing is going to be like, how my coming, my parousia. It says in verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Lightning would remind the disciples of a couple of things. First, whenever God's glory cloud appears, one of the manifestations of his glory cloud was lightning. When God's cloud settles on Mount Sinai, it's full of thundering and lightnings coming out of the cloud. Secondly, in many places, God's lightning is called in the Psalms and in the prophets, his, his lightning is called his heavenly sword or his spear or his arrows with which he destroys the wicked. Um, you'll be reading the Psalms, you'll be reading the prophets, and you read about God's glittering sword in the English or God's glittering spear or his glittering arrows. The word glittering is barak. And if you've read Judges, you know, barak the judge. It's the very same word. Barak means lightning. And so in 2 Samuel 22, in Psalm 144, in Zechariah 9, um, God's uh, arrows go out like lightning. Lightning is his spear. Lightning is his sword. So students of the Hebrew scriptures are used to hearing about these weapons of God's warfare. And they understand how God makes war from heaven. God warred from heaven against Pharaoh, against Sisera, against Babylon, over and over and over. That's what the coming of Jesus is going to look like. Jesus says, this is how you can expect this judgment to appear, just like you've seen judgments in the past, that human and natural and supernatural forces are going to combine to bring about God's purposes. Also notice he says that the lightning will shine, it will flash from the east to the west. From the east to the west is the direction that the sun rises. It's the direction the sun comes over the, over the earth. Uh, so this day of the Lord will be like a, a new dawn, an, uh, the rising of a new sun after a long night of tribulation. And it will leave behind the corpse of the old world and its old institutions. One more verse today. Verse 28, Jesus says, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. This is one more statement with a rich symbolic background. Uh, where, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. God repeatedly warns Israel throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, that if they broke covenant with him, their judgment would come swift as eagles. Their enemies would come swift as eagles. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Hosea, Habakkuk, all use that phrase. And the curse for breaking the covenant is often dramatically expressed as having your corpse devoured by the birds of the air. In fact, these two statements come together in Deuteronomy 28, in that long list in Deuteronomy 28, where God says, these are the things that are gonna happen to you in the land if you break covenant with me. Number one, your enemies are gonna come to you as swift as eagles, and also the uh, birds of the air, the unclean birds of the air are gonna devour your corpses. And then there's a description in, in Deuteronomy 28 of a siege and the condition inside of a city that is besieged because of their covenant breaking that is eerily similar to what Josephus describes in AD 70, uh, something that happened 1,200 years later after Deuteronomy 28 was written. 
But the point is, after these events, the temple and, and Jerusalem will be a carcass picked over by unclean scavenger birds. We'll stop there and finish next week. Stop there with the text. In this address, Jesus is telling his disciples about events that are going to happen within 40 years of their day, a, a catastrophic sequence of events that on the surface, this all appears to be carried along by international affairs, political factions, military conf conflicts, um, uh, political conflicts, and, and it might look like, on the surface, it might look like any one of the other hundreds and hundreds of uprisings that the Roman Empire stomped out during its long existence. But Jesus pulls back the curtain here so that we can see what's going on behind the scenes and so his disciples can see the heavenly context for all of these things. These events are in fact Jesus's own war against apostate Jerusalem, apostate Judaism, apostate temple. This is Jesus's war from heaven against this abomination that is apostate Judaism, against a corrupted temple, against a house that has leprosy in its walls, against an institution and a city that has rejected him, that has killed the prophets and continues to persecute the church. And, the, and Jesus says the only reason there's going to be a break from this, the only reason there's going to be a respite, the only reason this doesn't go on longer and the suffering doesn't continue is for the sake of the elect. He preserves his own people through this. Jesus shows this is really, this is what's really going on. And that tells me that if you want to know what's going on in history, you have to look at what's going on in the sanctuary. What's happening in the sanctuary? You have to see what's going on with God's covenant people. That's where the real story is. That's where the real story was then. And it's still true. If you want to know what's going on in the world, pay attention to the church. How healthy is the church? Is she being obedient? Are her ways pleasing to the Lord? Is she being faithful to her mission? Just as Israel committed apostasy, so can the church. There are many warnings in the New Testament that churches can become compromised and will be destroyed just as Israel was. If their worship becomes abominable, so they will become desolate, so they will suffer, and not only will they collapse, but the society around them will as well. So if you really love the nation... If you're concerned about our society and about our countrymen, you must care about the church. You must care about the church. And I'm not telling you to be indifferent about elections, not at all. Absolutely, use the influence you have. Use the vote that you have for the good of our society as much as that helps. Even, even focus your prayers and your energies more locally than nationally. We can do that. We can do that and not be swept into the hysteria of another unhinged election year, which I think we're bound for, and not be swept into that, and not think and act like secularists and pagans, because our trust, our hopes are not in the political process. That's not how the world is changed. And the most important things in the world are not the things you hear about on the news. Stay true to Christ and to his people. Keep your eye on the sanctuary. Invest your life in building up the walls of Zion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Savior Jesus. We ask you that just as he told his disciples to not be troubled, so keep us in peace, so keep us in stability 
and comfort by your Holy Spirit. No matter what is going on around us, continue to build up your people. And just as you spared your people through this great time of tribulation, so continue to spare us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.